Hi, my name is Mark Riggins, and I'm the senior pastor here at LifePoint Church. Thank you for joining us today. If you'd like a little more information about our church, check out lpchurch.us. I hope today's message is an encouragement to you. Well, this morning we continue in this series, and today what we're going to do is we're going to look at the most famous teaching Jesus ever gave, and it happens to be over our least favorite topic. It's called being self-righteous. Now, nobody likes this idea of being self-righteous. And in fact, when we look at being self-righteous, one of the things that none of us who are self-righteous have is an idea of self-awareness. They don't usually go well together. Like you see somebody who's being self-righteous, they don't seem like they really know it. You say, well, let's define self-righteous. Well, let's do that. Self-righteous as we're defining it is simply, I have a view that I so identify with that it allows me to diminish you. In other words, this is more than just being right and wrong. Because what happens when I have somebody I disagree with, the way I usually do it is, I'm right and you're wrong, right? That's kind of the way we work. I'm right and you're wrong. Well, what self-righteous, though, does, it takes it a step further and it says, I'm not only right and you're wrong. By the way, I see husbands and wives kind of elbowing each other. That's okay. I don't know who's the right and who's the wrong, but you can be on the receiving end of that. I'm right and you're wrong. But when you're self-righteous, what you do is you take it a step further and you begin to say, I'm not only right and you're wrong, but I'm good and you're bad. In other words, I'm righteous and you're unrighteous. This is what self-righteous behavior and thinking does. And what Jesus is going to show us today is that when, as a follower of Jesus, when we have a view about anything or anyone, it never should become an excuse to be disrespectful or dismiss another person because when that happens, you may be right, but you are no longer righteous. So, with that said, I know you're just excited to hear about self-righteousness. You are like chomping at the bit. I can tell. This is the most famous story Jesus has ever told, and yet it's over our least favorite topic. But maybe, maybe in the culture in which we live, it's one that we need to hear more than ever. So I just want to warn you and buckle up because we're going to look at an incredible story that Jesus teaches today. And if you're a guest here today, we're in the middle of a series, as Ben said, called Investigating Jesus how we know, and why we follow. And if you're not only a guest today, but maybe you're not a believer, maybe you kind of stepped into a church and you're checking church out, or you're wondering about Christianity, and you're kind of wondering, why is it that you people who follow this idea of Christianity follow a first century rabbi? We live in the 21st century. Why are you always making it about Jesus? And why this first century teacher? I think that's a really good question. And what you got to know is that 2,000 years after Christianity began, we still see that Christianity rises and falls on one individual, Jesus of Nazareth. And so what we're coming today is to say that Jesus is not a Bible story. The Bible is the Jesus story. And so it's fun to debate, debate you know, when, you, when you're thinking about faith, okay, does God exist? Is the entire Bible true? Those are fun questions to talk about. But what we're trying to do is we investigate Jesus in this series is a question that we think is a better question, and that is, is Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John a reliable account of actual events? And here's why. Because these are the life and teachings of Jesus. 
And all four at the end make a claim that something extraordinary happened. Something so extraordinary happened that these first century people upended their lives and began to follow this Jesus. And so we're narrowing it down even more and looking particularly at the book of Luke. The book of Luke begins whenever he says, look, I'm not even trying to write religious material. Look what he says. He said, I have started out and I want to tell you why I'm writing my book. And this is the book, this is the lens through which we're investigating Jesus in this series. In Luke chapter one, he writes, many have undertaken to draw up an account or a a, a recording of the events that have taken place and fulfilled among us in our generation, he says. And just as they were handed down from these eyewitnesses, from those who were from the first eyewitnesses and servants of the word, many whom he's very close associates with. Then he goes on to say, Luke, with this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated, he investigated Jesus through all the eyewitnesses and now through what he documented, we are investigating Jesus. He said, I recorded everything from the beginning. I, along with others, decided to write an orderly account for you. And so we're looking at Luke's gospel, Luke's book, as we continue our series of investigating Jesus. And today, we're going to fast forward all the way to Luke chapter 15, and we'll get there in just a minute. If you've got your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn with me there at Luke chapter 15. And in this chapter, we're actually going to look at the very famous story, the most famous story Jesus ever told, and it deals with our least favorite topic. All right, let's look at it together. Luke chapter 15, as we begin in verse one, it says, now the tax collectors and sinners, and we always love to point out, as you go through those first four books of the New Testament, the gospels, the life and teaching of Jesus, the tax collectors are always in, they're so bad, they're so despised, they're in their own category of sinner. Yes, you have the notorious sinners, and then you have tax collectors. They're a little worse than all the other sinners. But here's what's fascinating, because even today, we probably have some people that we tend to put in a different category of sin. There's, that's when we kind, of, we kind of adopt what Jesus is going to talk about, and this is the idea of self-righteousness. In other words, they're not just doing wrong things, they're now bad people, Right? You're not just right and wrong, it's now good and bad. And these tax collectors were put in the bad category. But watch the rest of this verse, watch this. The tax collectors, the bad people, and sinners, the bad people, were all gathering around to hear, say this last word out loud with me, Jesus. Now here's what's fascinating, depending on the translation you have, what we know is they're gathering around to hear Jesus teach Some translations say that the tax collectors and sinners would gather often around to hear Jesus teach. Now, I don't know about you, but I find this absolutely amazing that tax collectors and sinners, the most notorious sinners of the first century, would often gather around to hear Jesus teach. Now, look, we we say often that we want to be the kind of church where anyone can gather to hear the teaching of Jesus The question, though, you've got to ask yourself that we've got to ask is, why was it in the first century that people who were sinners and tax collectors would gather around to hear Jesus teach? Why was it that people who were nothing like Jesus seemed to like Jesus? And we've got to, what we're going to discover is through this chapter is the one thing you could never say of Jesus is he was never self 
righteous. He would definitely see the difference between right and wrong, but he wouldn't put us in categories of good and bad. Somehow, some way, Christianity was born on a person who did not act self-righteous, and our faith was born, it rises and falls on someone who unrighteous people were drawn to. I don't know about you, but I love that about Jesus. And if you're here and maybe you're newer to the faith or you're outside of faith looking in and you would say, that has not been my experience of Christianity. No, I've seen people instead who follow Jesus or claim to and they're judgmental or they're self-righteous. If that is your experience, oh, well, then you're going to love Jesus because that's exactly what Jesus experienced. Because now look forward in verse 2, after Jesus has had all these sinners and tax collectors gather around him, verse 2 says, but... The Pharisees, the teachers of the law, they muttered. You don't mutter when you're saying something you're proud of. They muttered, this man, talking about Jesus, he welcomes sinners. And then it's as if they whisper to the side and he eats with them. He not only welcomes them, he sits down and eats with those people. The Pharisees in this moment, they're not just seeing the sinners and tax collectors as wrong, they're seeing them as bad. And they're literally going from diminishing these people to becoming disgusted that Jesus would give the tax collectors and sinners a seat at his table. They're offended because they're thinking, no, 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 no. If you're really God, you would sit over here and you would avoid them and you would sit with us. Because to do what you're doing is to not take a stand. It's watering down the scriptures or the Torah. Jesus, you can't be hanging around sinners and tax collectors because you're going to be guilty by association. You can't eat with them. People are going to identify you with them. But Jesus didn't give two hoots about being guilt by association. If Jesus was worried about guilt by association, he would have stayed in heaven. If Jesus was worried about guilt by association, he wouldn't be associated with me. He wouldn't be associated with you. He wouldn't be associated with us. I'm so glad that Jesus welcomes the sinners and tax collectors at his table because that means there's a seat for me. You see, I can't be too hard on these Pharisees because the truth is there's a little Pharisee in me too. I don't like that about me, but hopefully you'll confess that that's in you as well. You see, the reason that it offends me when I read this beginning passage is because there is a little bit of me that identifies with their behavior. In fact, I wanna take a quick poll, and I am hoping you'll be transparent with me, but if not, you can leave me hanging dry up here today, and that's totally okay, that is your prerogative. Here's the poll I wanna take. I wanna give you two options that you can choose from. You can either choose that you're sometimes tempted to be self-righteous, or you are sometimes tempted to be unrighteous. Now let me explain them quickly. Self-righteous, we've kind of been talking about, and that is the idea that I sometimes struggle with this, and that is there's something wrong with those people. And sometimes even think that I'm better than them. And this is where Pharisees were pointing at the sinners and tax collectors. I don't like that that's sometimes me, but let me take a poll. Is there anybody else in here who would admit that, hey, there's sometimes there's a little Pharisee in me too? If that's you, would you raise your hand? Some of you raise it and put it down real fast because you didn't want to, like, just in case nobody else raised their hand. I don't blame you. 
I'm with you. Now, here's the other option is the unrighteous, okay? This is the person that says, I know God is supposed to love me, but I don't know if he likes me. I know that I'm supposed to be forgiven, but I sometimes still feel shame. I don't feel worthy of God's love. I always feel unrighteous. I can feel that way too. Anybody else sometimes feel that way? Yeah, yeah. And some of you didn't raise your hands, probably because you're not sure. I totally get that. But just remember, self-righteous people are not very self-aware people, so you can kind of figure out which category you're in, all right? I'm just trying to help you out there. All right, so moving on. So we've got these Pharisees who have said, Jesus, why do you eat with sinners and tax collectors? That's not fair. You shouldn't do that. You're going to be guilty by association. Jesus like, okay, you've asked me a good question. And just like Jesus, he doesn't just give them a simple answer. He actually tells them three parables. Remember, parables are made up stories by Jesus where he makes a really important point. Two of them are just real short illustrations, and then he tells this profound story that we're going to look at in just a minute. But let's look at the first two illustrations. The first one, Jesus, why do you eat with sinners and tax collectors? Jesus says, well, verse 4, suppose one of you has a hundred and you lose one of them. First century audience goes oh I know exactly what we do we'd go look for the lost sheep because that happens all the time it's what we do and 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 here we are in the 21st century most of us don't have a hundred sheep we're like I'm not exactly sure what that means would I go after the nine and would I go after the one what would that do and and so to kind of help us visualize that we actually found the staff went back and here's a video from the first century shepherd and he's actually grabbing one of his lost sheep watch this that's not actually a video from the first century but you knew that so it's not a compliment when we are constantly compared to sheep right this is who we are we keep returning with the same problems the same challenges right I am so glad that we have a shepherd who comes to the place where we've fallen and comes to find us and comes to get us. Why does the shepherd, even though 99 are contained, when one gets lost, why does the shepherd keep going after the one? Jesus is making a point that when you lose something, something of value, you are not content with what's left or what is not lost. It's, to put it in 21st century example, If we had a jigsaw puzzle with 100 pieces and one piece was missing as you put that thing together and you've got a hole in your puzzle, you don't go, well, I got 99, I'm good. No, you go looking for the one, right? If you have two diamond earrings and you lose one, you don't go, well, I've got one left. No, it's a set. You go look for the other one. I've got four kids. If I lose one, I don't go, well, I got three left. (laughs) We go looking for the one that's lost, right? This is what we do. That's what Jesus is making a point. You got a hundred sheep, you go after the one that's lost. And when you find it, you'll be so excited. Look at verse seven. Jesus says, I tell you in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the 99 righteous people who do not need to repent. Here's the really good news. God views me and you, unrighteous people, as valuable and lost. And anybody that you know, whether it's your neighbor or a family member, who you feel like is so far out there and is so far gone, just know God is not viewing them as good or bad. He's viewing them as valuable and lost. 
And then he shifts to a second illustration. And remember, he's answering the question, why are you eating with sinners and tax collectors? Then he gives another illustration. This is such a pivotal illustration because what happens is so many people refuse to read the Bible and they point fingers at the Bible. In fact, my daughters recently had a professor in their college say that the Bible isn't trustworthy, the Bible's outdated, the Bible's not usable because it's anti-women. I just want to tell you, anybody who says that needs to read the life and teaching of Jesus because there is no one who is more shockingly pro-women than Jesus in a time where that wasn't the case. And so he shifts from talking about the shepherd, then he's going to talk about a woman, and he says, or suppose there was a woman. And all the women who would have been in the crowd would have listened up like, oh, that's unusual. Normally, women aren't projected in a positive way. He talks about a shepherd, he talks about a woman, then he talks about a respected father in the same way. This is shocking what he's about to do, because what he's doing is, he's saying, even though we in this culture, first century culture, don't value women, what he's saying is, I am going to compare and make her the hero of the parable. I'm going to associate her with God. In a time where, where little girls were traded like a commodity, Jesus is actually elevating women to the place of dignity beyond their beauty in a time where women didn't have value. Jesus, way ahead of his time, was always elevating women. And then he gives this illustration. He says, suppose there's a woman who has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp? Doesn't she sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? So if you've got $10, you lose one, you don't think, oh, I got nine left. No, you go looking for the one. Why? Because when something is valuable, is lost. You're not content with what's left or what's not lost. You go looking for it. And now Jesus switches to the most famous story he ever told. And it's about our least favorite topic. It's often called the story of the prodigal son. And here we have two sons of a wealthy man. Both of them are essentially waiting for their father to die. And the younger son is impatient and wants his money now. Give me my inheritance. Look at verse 12. He says, the younger son said to the father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So the father divided his property between them. And the Pharisees are aghast. They're thinking so disrespectful, so dishonoring that while his father is alive, he would demand his inheritance so the son goes off in the next few verses and he spends all of the estate, all of his inheritance, and he spends it to the point that he's completely broke. And truthfully, as the Pharisees are listening, they're like, boy, he deserves that. He's getting exactly what he deserves. He is reaping what he has sowed. Good. I'm glad to hear Jesus has the sense to take it to this younger son. Meanwhile, the tax collectors and sinners are also listening to Jesus tell the story, and they're thinking, I wonder what happened to the son because they knew what it was like to be despised. They knew what it was like to be in the bottom of the barrel. And so the son de develops a plan. He's desperate. He's out of money. In the story Jesus is telling, look at verse 18. He says, I will set out and I will go back to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you, but I am no longer worthy. He's got this prepared speech. Oh, make me like one of your hired servants. So he's thinking, that's what I'll say when I go to my father. Now watch what the son did in verse 20. This is it. If you're at the bottom of the barrel and you don't know what to do, the son got up and he went to his father. Now the Pharisees are listening. And you know what they're thinking? I suspect they're thinking, oh, here we go. This is the good part. 
The father's gonna give him what he deserves. This is the moment where he can get revenge. This is the moment where he can really discipline him. I suspect even the tax collectors and the sinners, as they're listening to Jesus tell the story, they even secretly fear the father's response to the younger son who dishonored the father. And so we fast forward the story to verse 20. And in this next scene, we see why Luke had to record this story. Because now we get to discover once and for all, according to Jesus himself, what God is really like. How he views those who are far from him. But while, he says in verse 20, the young son, the younger brother, was still a long way off. His father saw him, and he was filled with, and we're gonna find out what he's filled with. If that would have been you, and you had been the father, and the younger son had done what this younger son had done, what would you be filled with? You know what the Pharisees are thinking? I bet he's filled with anger and vengeance. I bet he's got rage. Meanwhile, the tax collectors and sinners are listening, and you know what they're hoping? Oh, please be filled with acceptance and welcome. Please be filled with forgiveness. And what Jesus would fill in this blank with would reveal what God is really like. He says in verse 21, But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and he was filled with, say it out loud with me, compassion. Compassion for him. Not only that, watch this. He ran to his son and he threw his arm around him and he kissed him. And all of a sudden, can't you imagine in the eyes of the tax collectors and sinners as they're hearing the story, hope kind of rose in their heart. Even after what I've done, even after who I am, even after all the things that are in my past, even though I am constantly pointed, my others point their finger at me and they tell me I am nothing more. You're telling me the father is compassionate toward me and he's not only compassionate toward me, but he looks for me and if I'll turn toward him, and go back to him he will run toward me he will put his arms around me and kiss me and welcome me home are you telling me that's the way the father responds meanwhile the pharisees are moaning like what that isn't at all what i thought the father would do that isn't what i think the father should do and now the son he's got this rehearsed speech and immediately he launches into it in verse 21 he says oh father i have sinned against heaven and against you I am no longer worthy to be called your son and the father interrupts his speech in verse 22 and the father said to his servants quick bring the best robe and put it on him put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet in other words there's a robe to restore you to the family put a ring on you that'll reveal that you're my son and get sandals for his feet to reveal you aren't a servant you are my child And the Pharisees, meanwhile, are off to the side going, whoa, 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 not so fast. We'll give grace, but let's give grace with exceptions, which, of course, isn't grace at all. They're thinking, "Well, well, well, let's let him prove himself. Let's not be so quick to just turn the page. Don't we need to make sure that he's worthy? I mean, I don't think he deserves this. And the father says, but it's not about behavior, It's about a restored relationship. Because look at verse 24. The father says, For this son of mine was dead, and he is alive. He was lost, oh, but now he is found. Now, what's so important here is that word lost in verse 24, in the original language is the word 
apololos. Apololos is important because that word is the same exact word in the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3.16, where we see, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish is the English translation, but in the original language it's apololos. It's so that God gave his only son that those would not be lost. So, so here we see this same word. It's not that they're lost geographically, like they can't find their way north, south, east, west, but rather there is an eternal lostness to them. And that Jesus is saying through this parable that the Father is about those who are eternally lost. In fact, four chapters later, Luke would use the exact same word to record that the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the Apollos, the lost, those who are lost. This is why he came. This is who he's focused on. This is who he's looking for. The father is always looking for those who will come back and he wants to welcome them home. And Luke knew as this story was being told to him that Jesus was revealing something very new about Jesus and about God. Yeah, we've, we've got uh, the reality that, that sometimes Christians are measuring behavior and yet it's not about good and bad. But God views people through a different lens. It's lost or found. That's a different way to see people, isn't it? Lost or found. And if someone that you know or maybe you have been tempted to or are walking away from faith, it may be because people who follow Jesus are looking at the lens of good and bad instead of lost or found. This is a different way to see people. Meanwhile, Jesus reveals there's another character in the story. This is an important character because we can relate to this guy too. He's the older brother. And older brother's not happy and excited about baby brother coming back and dad celebrating. In fact, older brother is furious. He's angry. Look at his response to the story of the younger brother coming back and the dad being excited. Verse 29, but he, the older brother, answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and I never disobeyed your orders. I love whenever we think we're good, we exaggerate how good we are. I have never disobeyed your orders. Look at me, in other words, and then he says, and look at him, good, bad, righteous, unrighteous. Look at verse 30, he said, but when this young son of yours, I have nothing to do with him, who has squandered, he's, he's gone through your inheritance, he's dis." Uh, respected you with prostitutes he comes home you go and kill the fatted calf for him and not me for the bad and not the good there's self-righteousness here isn't there and he's saying he doesn't deserve it he didn't earn it and the father said I never said that he deserves it but there was a broken relationship that's been restored and when there's a restored relationship, we celebrate. In fact, Jesus continues to reveal what God is like, and this is such good news for all of us. Look at verse 32. The father said, we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he is found. See, they both see exactly what's happening through two different lenses. The father, he viewed people through the lens of lost 
or found. The older brother viewed people through the lens of good or bad. And therefore they saw the, as fair or unfair, as righteous or unrighteous. And Jesus is pointing out that those who follow him, there is no room for self-righteousness. Then in the end, what Jesus is pointing out, in answering the question, why do you eat with sinners and tax collectors? Jesus is revealing something. I want to I be like this. I so want us to be like this. And I believe we're, 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 we've made so much progress just through the history of our church, and we continue to make progress in this way. But Jesus isn't disgusted by lost people. He welcomes them home. He makes room for them. There is a seat at his table for those who are hurting and appear hopeless because he sees them as lost, not bad. And that must be why. People who were nothing like Jesus liked Jesus, and I believe he liked them back. So back to where we started with a thing none of us like to be identified with or even talk about, and that is this idea of being self-righteous. Most famous teaching Jesus ever gave on the least favorite topic we want to lean into. And let me just say this. If our version of Christianity allows us to write people off, it is not the Jesus version. If it allows us to dismiss and be disgusted by people, it is not the Jesus version. I would go further and say, when people who sin do things that bother us, They are not the enemy. They are victims of the enemy. And Jesus sees them as lost or found, not good or bad. And as Christians, we should know better because we are not better. We are just better off because we've come home and the Father has welcomed us there. And Luke, as he heard this story, he knew he had to record it because it would change the way we see God so as we wrap this up I want to be real personal there's a little Pharisee in all of us so let me ask you as you see people this week through what lens will you see them good or bad or lost or found Jesus says the father sees them through the lens of lost or found Again, we can identify right and wrong, but we don't elevate to good or bad. That allows us to diminish or even be disgusted by. Lost or found. Here's the truth. Even as little kids, we are taught to see people through the lens of good or bad. I mean, let's be honest. Even Santa Claus is making a list, checking it twice. He's going to find out who's naughty or nice, right? We know that's the way we see people, good or bad. And Jesus insists, says, no, 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 it's better. We're going to see people through lost and found. And we, re- we remember, no, I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Not because of anything I've done, but because the Father welcomed me home. And my job is just to invite others to find home. So then how does this impact LifePoint Church? We've said often that our vision is to be a place where anyone can belong before they believe. And what's fascinating to me is as we look at Luke chapter 15, where we're investigating Jesus, what we see is the Pharisees and teachers of the law thought, yes, anyone can belong with Jesus except sinners and tax collectors. 
except the notorious sinners and the tax collectors, right? They had an exception, and here's what I wonder. In the 21st century, 2023, where you and I live, I wonder, as the little Pharisee that's in all of us, who are our exceptions that can be at the table? In other words, I wonder if we wanted to fill this in, how we would actually say, well, yeah, where anyone can belong except, right? This is how our Luke 15 would begin. Anyone except. Anyone can belong except Democrats, except Republicans, except liberals, except conservatives, except legalists, except criminals, except those criminals, except people who do that disgusting sin. Like whatever it is, I wonder how we would fill that blanket. And here's a way we can find out is, who do we mutter about versus who we welcome? Because this all began with the Pharisees responding to Jesus in Luke chapter 15 and verse two. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they muttered, this man welcomes. We mutter and he welcomes. I wonder who we tend to mutter about. That may be who we dismiss. It may be who we've gone from right and wrong to good and bad, which allows me to dismiss other people. See, later in chapter four, Luke would record that Jesus, the son of man, came to seek and to save the lost, the apololos, those who we mutter against. He came for them. And then four chapters later, we're gonna look at this next week. I can't wait till next week. We have communion together. As we look at Luke chapter 23, what we see is that Jesus came to sacrifice his life and lay it down. That's how much he loves the lost. And that is good news for all of us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that we are so loved that there is nothing that we could do that would prevent you from loving us. And sometimes it's hard to receive that, to fully believe it. God, I pray for those who maybe aren't there yet that they would recognize that you're looking for them, that you're welcoming them, that you're running to them, and you welcome them with a hug and a kiss. Because you're all about celebrating restored relationships. God, help us to run to you. Then on the other side of that coin, God, as we have experienced your un conditional love despite our darkness despite our brokenness despite our sin help us to not clog that love that we offer other people but instead to be generous and recognize we are either lost or found and the only hope for this world is what you've offered in your son Jesus may we never give the impression that we're better than but point people to you. And may we continue to grow in becoming a place where anyone can gather to hear about Jesus and his love. And may that hope drive us forward, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.